Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. Going to finish this chapter today. We saw a stark contrast last week in the earlier verses between the fate of the uh, tribulation saints, those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, many of whom will be martyred. Some will survive as mortals to repopulate the earth. But then we saw the uh, horrific fate of those who succumb to the mark of the beast, those who pledge allegiance to the Antichrist and really become part of a worldwide satanic cult, satanic worship, because the Antichrist will be personally indwelt by Satan himself. We've probably all seen or heard or read about satanic or de rather demonic possession and how horrific that can be, but can you imagine being possessed by Satan himself? That will be happening to the Antichrist probably at the halfway point of the tribulation when he sets himself up as God to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. But we'll pick it up here in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Let's pray. Father God, as we wrap up chapter 14 here, hopefully, we ask you to be with us, guide us, direct us, give us insight and understanding into this passage as we continue our study of the book of Revelation, leading us to the very end of this present age and on into the millennial reign of Christ here on earth. We thank you and praise you for your holy scriptures. Bless this study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John hears a voice from heaven saying, Right. And this reminds us, John is called to not only witness this divine revelation, but to record it for posterity, if you will. John is the recipient of the revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the full revelation, the revealing of him and all of his glory in heaven and of what is about to occur here on the earth leading up to his return. So the angel tells him to write. Write this down, John. Keep writing. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy, 
and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is a promise. And there are those who want to avoid the book of Revelation. They say it's too hard to understand, it's divisive, and so forth, too hard to interpret. And yet it's the only book of the Bible that has this kind of a promise of a special blessing for those who read it, hear it, which we know in the scriptures, Jesus says, let him who has ears to hear, hear. So it's not just a physical hearing, it's a hearing in the Spirit. So you read it, the Holy Spirit enables you to hear what God is saying, and then to keep those things, to put them into practice what we learn here in the book of Revelation. What is he supposed to write? Here it is. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So for those during the tribulation, and we would suspect, I believe, rightly, that the majority of people who refuse to worship the beast and take his mark would be those who have received Christ during the tribulation. It's hard to imagine anyone refusing the mark unless they have become followers of Christ, believers. And so what the angel is telling John that from now on, and again, we're, we've moved into the second half of the tribulation when things get really, really bad. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And so, again, for the believer, death is nothing to fear. It's a promotion. And for the tremendous amount of suffering that will be taking place during the tribulation, blessed are those who die Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on through the end. Now, not all will, but it's certainly a blessing because it says that they may rest from their labors. Imagine the extreme stress and duress these tribulation saints will have to endure. If you've ever read the uh, book series, um, Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, how many of you read that? I know that it's had its critics, but I thought it was excellent and certainly gives us a very plausible scenario of what will take place. The rapture, the tribulation, and so forth. And we see all the suffering that they endured, and I think it's a pretty good depiction of what it will be like. That they may rest from their labors, and it says, and their works follow them. And so they will be among the many, hopefully, that will hear those wonderful words that God is well pleased with them. Their good works of which God is fully aware will follow them to the grave. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man. Obviously this is Jesus. That's one of his titles. He's referred to in the gospels as the son of man. He's sitting on a cloud, and I guess this is where people get the idea that when we go to heaven, we're just going to lounge on white clouds playing harps. However, if you notice here, Jesus is not holding a harp. Having on his head a golden crown. So again, another confirmation. This is Jesus, the King of Kings, and he's preparing to sit on his throne in Jerusalem, and he has in his hand a sharp sickle. You probably know this already. A sickle is a short-handled tool. A scythe has a long handle on it. You just swing it. 
The sickle is shorter. You have to bend down and swing it. It's a short-handled farming tool with a semicircular blade used for cutting grain, lopping, or trimming. Jesus has a sharp, a sharp one now, a sharp sickle in his hand. And so as the end of the tribulation draws nearer and nearer, the focus now is on the reaping. The completion of God's judgment on an unbelieving, Satan-worshipping world and the return of the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll get into that more here in this next verse. Another angel came out of the temple. By the way, this is not the temple in Jerusalem. This is the real temple in heaven. The earthly temple is just a representation of that temple which actually exists in heaven. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Matthew 13.30 Jesus is telling a parable here, an end times parable, if you will, about the wheat and the tares growing up together. The wheat are the true believers. The tares are the false believers, if you will. He tells them, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And he is referencing here the same harvest that we're reading about in Revelation 14. The great end times harvest. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, you notice not only does Jesus have a sickle, we see another angel here with a sickle also. And so he says to the reapers who were helping him in this final harvest, first gather up the tares, the weeds, if you will, and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then we go down to verse 37. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. So it's great. He tells the parable, and then he gives the understanding, the, the interpretation. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the terrors are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So it makes it perfectly clear what's going on. So just as the terrors are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The second coming, not the rapture. I repeat over and over again, the rapture is a secretive event where Christ comes for the saints. He calls us up to meet him in the air at the beginning of the tribulation. The second coming, he comes with the saints. Look at the book of Jude. He comes with the saints to execute judgment upon the earth and to take his throne in Jerusalem. The harvest is the end of the age, the reapers are angels, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with the fire, so shall it be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, 
Let him hear. This is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 12, if you want to go there later and look it up, where Daniel talks about us shining like the stars of the heavens forever and ever. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. As I've pointed out over and over again, not everything in Revelation is chronological. This is more of a forecast of what is to come very soon. The fulfillment is in Revelation 19. When Christ returns riding on a white horse, we return with him on white horses. People have often discussed what will there be animals in heaven? Will we see our departed pets there? I was always of the opinion that no, we would not. Really upset a gentleman in our church many years ago. Wasn't our intention to do that, but he got very upset when we told him his dog would not be in heaven. We were, should have paid attention to the, the animated film, All Dogs Go to Heaven, I guess. We missed out on that one. But the fact that we are going to be coming back on white horses certainly gives some indication of animals there. And I know there was a book released several years ago by Tom Horn's um, publishing company indicating that they will be there. So we'll just have to see. I know that Christ did not die for animals. He died for human beings. But we know that God loves all of his creation. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, what God has in store for us in that regard. So, the reaping. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And as I mentioned, this is the temple in heaven, the true temple. And he has a sharp sickle. So Jesus is going to have some help with this harvest. Mark 13, 27. Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. And again, this is not a reference to the rapture. It's a reference to the second coming when all those surviving believers on the earth will be gathered to him. Verse 18, another angel came out of the, from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the final judgment or reaping will be a fiery one. The fire of God is a wonderful thing for those who know him. And it's a terrible thing for those who don't. We saw in Revelation 1.14, Jesus, this description of the glorified Christ, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. I suppose, I don't know, we might assume that all of us believers, human beings, once we have received our immortal, glorified, eternal, imperishable, incorruptible bodies, maybe we will all have white hair too. So that should be of some consolation to those who are turning gray, turning white. We may all be white-haired, white-haired. Got to be careful in this day and age. I could get in trouble just for saying that. 
His hair, head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes, here's the part I really wanted to get to, like a flame of fire. Throughout the scriptures, folks, God is portrayed as a God of fire. Ezekiel 1.26. In this chapter, first chapter of Ezekiel, he has a vision of God riding across the universe in his fiery chariot, accompanied by the four living creatures, which we've also encountered here in the book of Revelation. So in verse 26, it says, Above the firmament over their heads the four living creatures, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. The Father, perhaps the Son, Jesus. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were. Remember when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai, he was not allowed to look upon God's face upon his front, but he did see God's backside as he walked by. So, again, God is a spirit, but he manifests himself through the Son, Jesus Christ. But also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Our God is a fiery God. Like I said, it's a good thing if you know him. It's not so great if you don't. Second Peter 3.10, also referencing the, the second coming, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So there's the rapture. But then Peter jumps fast forward here all the way to the end of the millennium in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This doesn't happen until after the millennium. And so just like in the Old Testament where many, many of the, the prophecies regarding the coming of Christ, the prophets received a message from the Lord, but within that message... Uh, there were elements con concerning the first coming and elements concerning the second coming, and they were all crammed together, if you will. And that's one of the reasons the Jews were confused when Christ came the first time. They weren't able to detect the difference between his first coming and his second. And so we see the same thing here where in this narrative, Peter is compacting or contracting events that will take place over a thousand-year period. First, the day of the Lord, the thief in the night, the rapture of the church. And then he jumps all the way fast forward to where the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all these things will be dissolved. One of the uh, phrases we used to throw around in the Jesus movement days when referring to material things, was it's okay, bro, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. All the things of this world. And so Peter is saying in light of this fact that everything of this present world is going to pass away. How should we live? What manner of persons ought to you to be in holy conduct and godliness and looking for 
and hastening the coming of the day of God. It's hard to imagine that you and I could actually hasten the coming of the day of God, but that's what Peter says, by living holy, righteous lives. I guess we could say that, well, when that final person that God knows is going to receive Christ, they're going to be saved, born again, and fit for the kingdom of God, then that's when all these things will unfold. Therefore, if we live holy, godly lives and win more people to Christ, then the end will come sooner. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. Wow, that's going to be something to see, isn't it? And again, it won't be a scary thing for you and I. It'll be a magnificent thing. It's finally at the end of the millennium, the final purging of our planet, if you will. During that millennial period, there will be people born on the earth to those who have survived the tribulation as believers, mortal believers, and they will begin to reproduce again, to refill the earth. But over a period of time, once again, exhibiting the true heart of man, people will begin to rebel against God once again. And at the end of the tribulation, Satan is released after being imprisoned for a thousand years. Christ will let him be released in order to test those dwelling on the earth. And many will unbelievably, incredibly, as hard as it is to imagine, they will actually side with Satan. And it will be a repeat of the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation where the these evil people in cahoots with Satan will rise up against Jesus and the righteous and they will be put down once and for all and that will be God's final proof to the human race that apart from him, without him, we are evil, reprobate sinners and the only hope is redemption through Jesus Christ. Then he's going to burn it all up and create a new heavens and a new earth and I can only believe it's going to be even more amazing than the one that we have now. And so that's what Peter's touching on here, compacting these things in this passage. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Remember, God promised Noah... He would never again destroy the earth by water. Remember that? The great flood, which by the way, there's tons and tons of archaeological and geological evidence for. Do you know that? A worldwide flood. We've got evidence right here in New Mexico. The fossils and so forth. Tons of evidence of a universal worldwide flood. And so God promised Noah he would never destroy the earth again with a flood, with water. But he didn't say anything about fire, now did he? So next time it's going to be fire. The angel says, Gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So again, as Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. As in the days of Noah... The wickedness of mankind will finally come to fruition, ripe for judgment. 
the wickedness on the earth at the time of Noah was so blatant, so outlandish, so beyond the pale that God says, you know what, I can't take this anymore. I'm going to destroy this world and start over with Noah and his family. That's essentially what's going to happen again. So now, her grapes are fully ripe. Things are getting riper and riper around here. You ever heard that term in ter uh, way used in terms of a, of a baby's diaper? That is really ripe. I suspect that's what it smells like right now to God, this world. It's getting ripe, folks. And you've heard that term, the book, the film, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Well, the, the people of this earth are about to reap the grapes of wrath. Verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth. And you know, there are those on both sides of the fence, believers, non-believers, atheists, agnostics, you name it, who mock and scoff and even spew hatred at those who suggest that there really is a worldwide judgment coming. And you know what? I told you guys last week that with the transgender thing, with the drag queen thing, all this stuff happening, we're moving closer and closer to that time when pedophilia will be accepted. How many of you heard of an actress named Kirstie Alley? From Cheers and Star Trek and Look Who's Talking, the baby movie. It's been around a long time. She happens to be conservative, which in Hollywood is pretty much a death sentence. She came out this week, after I told you this last week, and said the very same thing with all the garbage they're spewing at us through the movies, through the TV, through everything else. She said it won't be long before pedophilia is normalized. I'm not the only one that sees it. And if you don't think that a world promoting the things that this world is promoting today is ripe for judgment, then you must be from another planet. This world is ripe for judgment. I don't wish it on anybody. I would like God. God is not willing that any should perish. In this same passage in 2 Peter, it says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, if God's such a loving God, why does He send people to hell? He doesn't. You have the choice. The ball is in your court. If God's will were to be done 100%, no human being would ever go to hell. But at the same time, his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness demands judgment. That judgment was poured out on Christ on the cross. But it only works if you accept it. The forgiveness is only there for you if you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that Jesus' blood paid the price for your sins. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. You ever seen a winepress? This thing that twists and comes down and smashes the grapes? Only this time the people are the grapes. God's winepress will squash the grapes of wickedness and blood will flow like never before. Verse 20, the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles. 
for 1,600 furlongs. This is referring to the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 16, 13 through 16. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So these demonic entities are going to go forth from Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, to seduce these world leaders to enter into an unwinnable battle against Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. It means Mount Megiddo. One of the, my favorite archaeological sites in Israel is this area of Mount Megiddo. The, the stables of Solomon were there. It was the uh, base of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the battle of Armageddon, the armies of the Antichrist versus the armies of heaven, will be fought in the valley of Megiddo, coming down from the mountain there. It's also called the Jezreel Valley or the Plain of Esdralon. It is 90 miles north of Jerusalem. The central Jezreel Valley, roughly 380 square kilometers in size, is bounded on the north by the Nazareth Mountains and Mount Tavor, on the east and south by Mount Gilboa, and the mountains of Samaria respectively, and on the west by Mount Carmel. We're told here in Revelation 14, Blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles. In case you're wondering, that's about five feet deep. Blood, five feet deep. And folks, I don't believe this is symbolic. This is literal. It's really going to happen. And 1,600 furlongs, that's 75 miles. The blood will flow five feet deep almost all the way to Jerusalem down through the valley of Megiddo, Jezreel Valley, the plain of Esdralon. This will be the most massive, brutal, bloodshed battle in the history of mankind. Revelation 15.1, we're going to look, just give us a little introduction to next week. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Because in them the wrath of God is finished. And thank God for that. But it has to come. The seven plagues are the seven bold judgments that we will see in chapter 16. Chapter 15 is an introduction that leads us into 16 where we will see the seven bold judgments. We're getting closer and closer, not only in terms of our study here, but in terms of actually seeing Jesus face to face. I would love it if we just wrap this up right at the time that the rapture occurs. Wouldn't that be great? Let's stand. Before we sing our closing song, let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. Anybody with a prayer request, please raise your hand. We'd like to pray for you this morning. I see quite a few out there. God sees your hand. He knows what's on your heart. Mm-hmm.
Let's pray for those. Father, we lift up each one here this morning. You know each person. You know each need, each desire of their hearts, Father. Father, if it's for health issues, you are the great physician. You are the healer of our bodies. Lord, we know we live in bodies cursed by sin. They, they are mortal bodies, and they will eventually wear out. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray for your healing touch upon each one. No matter how small or how great the problem might be, whether it's a head cold, allergies, cancer, heart disease, Lord, it makes no difference to you. Nothing is difficult for you. It's all the same. We pray for strength, comfort, encouragement, and healing in our mortal physical bodies, Lord, that we might be able to serve you here for as long as you would intend for us to be here to the best of our ability, that we would have health and strength to offer up our lives as living sacrifices. So we pray that you'd pour out your healing upon each one and for others that may not even be in this room, either watching online or those that uh, are in the hearts and minds of people here that they're thinking of and praying for. We lift them up to you. Lord, for uh, those who are struggling with anxiety, worry, fear, doubt, that you would lift that from them. Help them to give all their anxieties over to you, Lord, because you care for us. Lord, and you promised if we would bring everything to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that the peace that passes all understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So we pray you guard each heart and each mind against the attack of the enemy. Pour out your peace upon each one this morning, Father. Lord, for relationships that need mending, healing, repairing, we pray that you would give wisdom and guidance to those in this room who could be instruments of reconciliation to know what to say, what not to say, when to say it, how to say it. And sometimes it's just a matter of prayer. So we lift up relationships that need healing and repair, that you would repair those relationships. We pray for marriages struggling, Lord, that the, we know the enemy fights hard to take apart and tear down Christian marriages. We ask that you would bring healing and restoration in marriages where needed. Lord, for those having financial issues, sometimes we create our own problems, and we ask you to forgive us for that and help us to do better, to be better stewards. We ask you to give us wisdom and guidance and direction on our finances. But, Lord, sometimes it's not our fault. Things just happen. We ask you to provide abundantly for your people, Lord. Bless your children. Provide for the, each and every need for your glory. We will give you the glory and the praise and the honor for taking care of us. And we thank you for this time together today in worship and in your word. And we honor you now, Father, one last time.